0: Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: This is an RNZ podcast.
2: It's fair to say that the prosecution just kind of focuses on that, maybe unduly, but that's what they set out to prove, that acrylamide was uh, the cause of the professor's deterioration in health.
1: Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan, I'm host of the Daily Afternoons program on RNZ, and you're listening to Crimes NZ, where I talk to people who are connected in some way or other with serious crimes that have happened in New Zealand. In this episode, I talked to Lady Deborah Chambers, QC. She presented a documentary on the case which became known as The Poison Professor, where Dr Vicky Calder was accused of poisoning Professor David Lloyd in Christchurch in 1992.
2: The two main players are Dr Vicky Calder, who is a biologist at Christchurch Medical School. And Professor David Lloyd, who really was a very eminent uh, professor, he was he got he became a fellow of the Royal Society in London, and was considered to be an outstanding researcher, popular teacher, had a Harvard PhD. Uh, they had all the bells and whistles between them, and they were in a six-year de facto relationship. And then in June 1992, they go off together to London, in fact, for him to to become uh, the Fellow of the Royal Society. Mm. Then he goes home via California, comes home, uh, Dr. Calder meets him at the airport, and he tells her pretty soon afterwards that, in fact, he's met another woman, Linda Newstrom, and he's fallen in love with her, and it's all over, and he's out of the house within six days. Um, Now... (laughs) Vicky Calder was um, scorned, of course, but she does a lot more than what most of us do in those circumstances. (laughs) She writes numerous letters uh, to him, which are angry, sometimes using a pseudonym. She lets down his tyres. Uh, she leaves signs on his windscreen in the university car park and she cuts up his shirts and trousers and shoes that were still in his in her wardrobe. So that is uh, the background and that all happens in June and he becomes seriously ill in December 1992 uh, and he tells people he thinks he's been poisoned. So then he goes off to hospital uh, after a, a period of time where he's kind of deteriorating. Uh, Dr. Calder visits him and is seen giving him giving him a glass of water, uh, and then later that day after she's visited him, he goes into a coma. He deteriorates really quickly and he stays in a coma until 1993. Then he regains consciousness and gradually his health does improve as his life goes on. Uh, but he actually dies died in 2006. So she gets charged uh, in, um, as you've said, with attempted murder, alternatively poisoning with intent. And uh, the first trial jury's hung; uh, they can't make up their mind, can't make agreement. Second trial, uh, Dr. Calder's found not guilty. So that's a summary of the uh, of the background events.
1: Yeah. When did police start suspecting that, um, that his illness may have something to do with neurotoxin?
2: Well, actually in about uh, January um, 1993, because one of the doctors treating him um, uh, starts to think um, there's something really odd here. So they start running a battery of tests. And uh, in fact, one of the um, that I think it's that same doctor who who happens to come across the paper in regard to acrylamide, which is a pretty obscure uh, substance, and he he thinks that the professor's symptoms are consistent with acrylamide poisoning, and it's fair to say that the prosecution just kind of focuses on that, maybe may unduly, but that's what they set out to prove, that acrylamide was uh, the, the cause of um, the professor's deterioration in health. Uh, so it is quite a long time before she's arrested, um, uh, but the reason for that is that the Crown and the police go off on a worldwide search for information about acrylamide because there's, there's only a small amount of scientific expertise uh, worldwide on that um, substance. And people, and to be fair, the science was pretty unclear. It was a one-off. There were no other cases like this in the world. And so they they really went um, uh all out to try and see if they could prove this, and that was long and complicated and expensive, and as I said, was involved experts from all over the world.
1: And presumably they had Vicky Calder in their sights the whole time. She would have been the, uh, you know, if, if someone had used a poison on David Lloyd, she would have been the one they were looking at.
2: Well, I don't know that for for sure, Jesse, but when they come to trial, it is certainly the prosecution's case that Dr. Calder had the motive, had the opportunity, had the knowledge, had access to acrylamide from the medical school. Um, and um, she they also had evidence from witnesses who testified that she'd been furious uh, with uh, Professor Lloyd and was familiar with toxins such as acrylamide. Um, and, of course, they had the letters uh, that I spoke about um, which established how angry and, uh, in fact, at times, deceitful she'd been. Mm. So that's, that's, uh, that kind of evidence, I assume, as you say, was available to the police pretty early on. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if they were looking at her very early on as well. No other obvious motive for um, poisoning him, but, of course, the defence case was that he hadn't been poisoned. The defence case was, look, this is a um, post-viral deterioration caused uh, by uh, nature, not by deliberate poisoning. Um, So that's what their case was. So they didn't need to point uh, to... Um, a motive or an alternative person running around trying to uh, knock off the lovely professor. Um, So uh, that's what the two sides argued.
1: So tell us about uh, the trial then. Uh, Who did Dr Vicky Calder get to represent her?
2: Well, she had Judith ablett Kerr who uh, subsequently became a QC, and uh, when you see Judith in action in the television series, she really was terrific. I mean, she did a great job in both these trials, in my opinion. Um, she's she's fiery. She's a legal traditionalist. She dominated the courtroom. And, you know, she she didn't – this was a really difficult trial. And I, I think she, she really did do a brilliant job. And it was difficult because the scientific evidence was so complex and so contradictory. But it was also difficult because what she did in the first trial is she'd gone off, as she was as was proper in, a, a, to do, and got her own uh, expert evidence that she hadn't and, and was not required to reveal to the Crown. Uh, so they didn't know what was coming. The Crown didn't know what was coming. And... She was firing these questions at the Crown witnesses, the Crown experts, uh, because she knew what her evidence was. Uh, No-one else in the courtroom did, and the judge didn't know, uh, as is normal. Uh, and you can see, uh, when you see the um, the television report in, of the trial, which was filmed in total, uh, the presiding judge, who was Justice Tipping, uh, Pushing her, saying, "Well, you know, why are you asking that? What? Well, come on, get get your cards on the table.
3: Come on!" <laughs> but of course,
2: she doesn't want to. She wants to ambush and she wants to hit these uh, crown witnesses without them knowing where she's going. And I think, you know, she keeps her dignity. She keeps her respect for the judge, but she also keeps going and she keeps her ground. and And she's wearing her little cards close to her chest. And she's just pinging out a little bit of one and bringing it back in again. And so I thought I thought she did a great job because they didn't know where she was coming from. And she had some pretty strong evidence that really savaged a lot of the Crown evidence, uh, which, of course, she subsequently called. So I, I think it's a great trial to watch an excellent criminal defence advocate uh, in full flight.
1: Uh, by the way, is your documentary still available to view anywhere?
2: Um I don't know the answer to that, Jessie. But mm. <laughs> it, it actually it did a lot of people it was quite it was broadcast a number of times in this country and it was also broadcast ABC bought it so it was broadcast a number of times in Australia, so it's probably somewhere on the net. Was it uh, but I'm sorry, don't know. Um Oh what is it called? <laughs> I can't great Great either.
1: publicist, by the way, Deborah. <laughs> yeah, I'm
2: so sorry about that. No, um, that's all good. We'll, um, we'll look it up. But I think if you Google um, uh, yeah. this case, it'll come up then.
1: Yeah, um, it might be part of the New Zealand on-screen collection, but we'll definitely find out. Hey, um, so what was the prosecution's case then? What, what witnesses did they call?
2: Uh, well, they called uh, a whole heap of scientific evidence and they called her um, th- these witnesses about how um, uh, she had access to all of these um, to acrylamide. They also did call some witnesses who uh, gave evidence about dinner party conversations and-, and so on, where she'd said, "Well, every biochemist in the country knows how to kill someone without leaving a trace." <laughs> and. Wow. Um, Uh, and talked about various substances that you could put on door handles and someone would, uh, it would go through their skin uh, and penetrate their body that way without them realising and so on. Um, And then, then they tried, then they called this evidence on acrylamide. Now, the problems for them, um, well, the first of all, the good things they had, the things they had in favour of, of guilt, was that they had these absolutely outstanding statistics, uh, which were that the professor's hair samples showed a peak uh, in acrylamide concentration, bang, at the time he first felt ill, and his blood samples contained 800 times more CEV, which is a byproduct of acrylamide, than a normal healthy individual. Mm -hmm. But where they they ran into trouble was that hair analysis has real difficulties and there are real uh, detection problems in regard to showing acrylamide. Acrylamide, by the way, charmingly, uh, can be flushed from the body within hours or days of being exposed to it. Um, so um, the, uh, the the and a lot of their science, uh, including hair analysis, was uh, very um, new um, and um, uh, no, and based on uh, evidence that was complex and contradictory, uh, and not scientifically. Uh, Established evidence, and and that was because, to be fair to them, this was very new. This was a very, you know, this was a one-off. But it wasn't, uh, you know, proving acrylamide poisoning uh, was really difficult because there's no biomarker for it. There still isn't one that's agreed. Um, So they they ran into those those difficulties were with the prosecution case right from the beginning. And you might say that because they had problems establishing what poison had been used, by whom, and when it was administered and how, that it was pretty inevitable that Dr Calder would be found innocent. And it's pretty hard to get a guilty verdict with those kind of factors
1: operating. Yeah. Out of interest, by the way, are hair samples more more accepted or, or less unfamiliar now in court trials?
2: Yeah, there's still problems with them. They're still highly controversial uh, as a source of evidence um, because uh, there's real scientific uh, validity issues with them. So it remains a problem.
1: This was a jury trial, was it?
2: Yeah, both were jury trials, yes.
1: So pretty hard to convince 12 people um, to convict someone on evidence that's unfamiliar, uh, one Experts saying one thing, another saying another, and is that the reason that that first trial ended up being a hung uh, verdict, hung hung jury? Yes.
2: Well, well, I think that's a very good point, Jesse. and indeed one of the um, big issues that came out of this trial was the scientific community um, saying, well, you know, this evidence was so complicated. How can you expect uh, a lay jury to... Properly assess it. It is just ridiculous. And was it a case that the jury uh, were completely baffled by it, or were they in fact unconvinced? Now, Judith Ablacur, I know afterwards, said, Well, both counsel used graphs and charts and analogies to try and aid the jury, and she didn't think that she thought that the jury understood it well enough. But uh, that I find that a little bit hard to believe, because I mean we're talking weeks of of um, you know uh, boffin heads talking about their tiny little area of science that they understand and that they've spent you know twenty years studying, and lay lay jurors, the the scientific community and others said, "Well, look, if you're going to kind of decide people's guilt or innocence basically on scientific evidence, there's got to be a better way of doing this and maybe you have an independent scientific body which assesses the validity of the scientific evidence and they give evidence or a, 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 an independent scientist who sits with the judge and assists the judge on it. Uh, I mean, the, the judge wouldn't have known what evi- what this, whether this evidence was valid or not. Um, so it's really the blind leading the blind and, yeah. I, and I think there is an argument there for this kind of evidence I mean, are juries suitable for this? I mean, I wouldn't begin to understand it. I mean, there's a, there is, there's a kind of a... It's very odd, isn't it, the way the people who decide the guilt or innocence of others uh, are likely uh, to be in the category of people who couldn't understand the evidence.
1: 100%. <laughs> yeah, terrifying. Yeah. Uh, now, by the, now, by the way, um, we have found your documentary... It's oh. called the Trial Crown versus Calder, and it's on the um, the Natanga Sound and Vision, the Sound Archives website, and so we're putting it up onto our website now for people who would like to view it. A uh, oh, hung thank jury, you. yeah, a hung jury. And then was there any question about whether they were going to go for a second trial?
2: No, I don't think there was. I think they um, they, they they definitely. Um, uh, as far as I know, they just went straight to a second trial, which yeah. is normal with a hung jury and with serious charges. That's normal.
1: And and, and did anything um, change about the respective cases of the prosecution and defence?
2: Um, well, um, the the big thing that changed was that the crown said, oh, uh, the, there's evidence which suggests to get this sick, he would have the professor would have had to have had a second dose. So what they were trying to say was that there was a dose initially when he became ill, and then uh, when Dr Calder visits the professor uh, at the hospital where he's um, uh, still conscious but not at all well uh, and gives him a glass of water, um, th- and then uh, you recall I said that he subsequently became unconscious later that day, that that was a second dose. So there was, a, there was a change there, um, uh, and you can see, though, how strong that circumstantial evidence is. I mean, it seems a remarkable coincidence, doesn't it, uh, that she visits and then he, then he goes into, uh, then he deteriorates rapidly. But one of their problems was, the, the prosecution, that no one could place uh, Dr Calder with Lloyd on the day he became ill. So um, that was a problem for their case as well. But that was the big change, that there was two doses, not one. Which, okay. if, if it were true, would make it a particularly nasty crime, you might think, if yeah. it were true.
1: Um, presumably Vicky Calder wasn't, um, didn't appear as a witness at all?
2: No, she didn't. Okay. Mm.
1: Uh, so, as to that second trial, we've now got some archived audio from Checkpoint, courtesy of the Sound Archives, Nga Taonga, after the jury in the retrial returned its verdict of not guilty in April 1996. And this is Judith Ablett Kerr being interviewed by Linda Dodge.
3: You must feel exhausted. Yes, uh, yes, I am. It's been a long trial and it's been hard work, too. A great personal victory, though, for you. Well, I think it's probably a victory for the justice system at the end of the day. How did you feel going
2: into this trial for the second time? What were your feelings that first day of this trial?
3: Well, it's, no lawyer looks forward to a second trial. Second trials are notoriously difficult because you've done it all before and um, the thought of having to do it all again is just a bit much, but uh, we did it. You did indeed. <laughs> and, and what's Vicky feeling at the moment? Well, she's delighted that it's it's all over. I mean, it's been three and a half years, and um, it's, it's, she's just been waiting for this day, I suppose, and I, I think that she's, she's delighted that it's over. Do you know what her plans are for the future? Oh, no, I think she's got to uh, take a few days to think about that. I think that, um, well, her words to me were that you can't really think beyond the end of the trial in this sort of situation, and I think she's probably right.
2: What's it like for you as a lawyer having a case that has had so much technical and scientific evidence?
3: Well, I mean, a lot of hard work and it's required an awful lot of research. I don't think people perhaps understand just how much work you have to do just to to be able to um, cross-examine witnesses of the calibre that were called in this trial. A lot of hard work. Do you feel the jury at times got overwhelmed by all the scientific evidence? Well, obviously not. (laughs) Um, I I think that was always the fear. But, uh, uh, well, they put in a lot of hard work too, I suspect.
1: That was Vicky Calder's defence lawyer, Judith ablett Kerr, talking to Checkpoint in 1996 after that uh, second trial when she was found not guilty. What was the media coverage like during those two trials, Deborah?
2: Huge. Uh, I mean, it it really had uh, all the buttons, didn't it? This Uh, trial—the lovers, the scorned uh, woman, uh, the um, uh, the the manner, the alleged manner of causing uh, the harm to the professor. Uh, and all set in the uh, what my daughter would call the bougie world uh, in, uh, in, in Christchurch. Uh, so great witnesses, interesting characters. I mean, as I've said, Professor Lloyd was world recognized um, and, and a love story as well. I mean, he goes on to uh, marry uh, the uh, American woman that he'd fallen in love with, Linda Newstrom, and remains married to her for the rest of his life. Um, so uh, a, a fascinating trial which completely captured the media uh, and interesting personalities. I mean Judith Eblot Kerr herself, as I've said, who is, is great to watch, and uh, a judge who's uh, quite interventionist, uh, uh, pushing people round in the in the um, trial room. Not all judges are as interventionist as Azona was. Uh, and some kind of uh, courtroom battles between bench and bar. Um, so it really captured New Zealand's imagination, uh, understandably. It, it was a fascinating trial.
1: And then what happened to the, uh, the various people after that? You mentioned that the uh, professor died actually 14 years after that um, initial sickness. Was it related, related to the... Uh... The alleged poisoning, or the uh, or whatever happened in 1992,
2: I don't know. Uh, but uh, he's only in his late 60s, so he's pretty young. Um, I imagine it would have been connected to that. Uh, that um, to to the incidents in 19 in 1992. He. Um, the, the good news is, I mean, initially he he couldn't uh, speak. Uh, without the help of a machine, uh, mm. he's paralysed from the neck down. But he gradually does teach himself how to speak. He can't read or write, but he does manage to go back to work uh, with people working with him. Um, so th- I think that was, uh, that was a wonderful thing. And uh, his, his wife, his widow, uh, says that he was remarkably cheerful uh, despite the circumstances, and has changed life. Um, so um, that that is obviously a good thing too. And and, and Dr. Calder um, is uh, working in New Zealand. She's changed her name. Um, I, 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 don't, I imagine to try and get on with a new life. And who can yes, you would so. she's, she's remarried. I changed my name too. Um, and so she she seems to be. Um, uh, getting on with life and and um, uh, it, it is, is of course in the eyes of the law uh, completely innocent uh, so she should be able to get on with her life
1: You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jessie Mulligan There are more episodes of the series on the RNZ podcast page or you can get them through your favourite podcatcher like Apple, Google Spotify or iHeartRadio